turn with me this evening, if you would, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. Last Lord's Day evening, we opened our service with reading from Exodus 20. The first record of these ten words, and we're reading tonight the second record of these, hence Deuteronomy's name. Who can translate that? Deutero. Second, Namas. Law. Second giving of the law. Deuteronomy 5, and we'll begin verse 1. And Moses called all Israel and said unto them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that you may learn them and keep and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even with all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount, saying, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. Thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt, do no, shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox, nor thine ass, nor any of thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, that thy manservant and thy maidservant may rest as well as thou. And remember thou, or remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm. Therefore the Lord thy God commanded thee to keep the Sabbath day. Honor thy father and thy mother, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, neither shalt thou commit adultery, neither shalt thou steal, neither shalt thou bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt, neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, Neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, or his manservant, or his maidservant, his ox, or his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. These words, the Lord spake unto all your assembly in the mount out of the midst of the fire, of the cloud, and of the thick darkness, with a great voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them in two tables of stone, and delivered them unto me. Lend our reading there, and we trust that the Lord again will bless the public reading 
of His inspired Word. Let's do bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we tonight come with grateful hearts to be under the public reading of these words. Lord, these words that, as we've read tonight, came with fire upon Mount Sinai. We record elsewhere people exceedingly feared and quaked. Lord, You had commanded that not even a beast should break through unto the mountain. Here is a publication afresh of that law of God that is from creation Lord, to the end of the ages. And what a thunderous thing it is to hear these words that we have so consistently, repeatedly broken. But there's another mountain in Scripture. Mount Calvary. And we are grateful there that every transgression of this Mount Sinai that belonged to us, You punished in another instead of us. And we pray tonight that even as we consider something again of this, Your holy law, that You will remind us of our Savior and that Gospel hearts and thoughts would permeate the whole of our meditations. So prosper us this night, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, last Lord's Day evening, I said I wanted to begin this year in our evening services with somewhat of a protracted discussion or consideration of the Lord's Day. I look back over the years, there have been more than one occasion I've preached on the Sabbath early in the year, but I've never done it in such a way as I purpose to these opening weeks of this year. In a protracted way, I trust in something of a, a systematic way. I think I mentioned last time, if not, I mention it now, but I have a, a nice little volume by Daniel Wilson, who was an Anglican minister back in the early 1800s. Uh, it's getting close to 200 years ago that uh, these sermons were preached. I'm not preaching his sermons, I'm not even consistently following his outline, but seven messages with regard to the observation of the Lord's Day. And I don't know if our final number will come out to be seven or fewer or more, but pressing on to look at least many, several Lord's Day evenings at this theme. And last time when we began the studies, I suggested to you that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. As we'll come to see some of the objections that certainly have prevailed, and we could add to that, reaped a very sad harvest in the last century. Some of the arguments against the Lord's Day as a Christian Sabbath will be answered along the way. But a lot of those arguments are built upon a single premise of the Sabbath being a Jewish law. The Sabbath being a Jewish ordinance. Something that was given for that nation, for that people, and something that with the ceremonial law, which we clearly see is abolished in the New Testament, that that is done away as well. Well, our focus tonight is going to be a second highlight in these studies. If we saw last time that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance, 
that it didn't originate with the origination of the nation of Israel. If it wasn't first published, if it wasn't first commanded at the establishment of that nation, along with their civil and ceremonial laws that were established at that time, then that goes a long way in establishing or answering that argument that it's a Jewish thing and that it should have passed away with the other Jewish things, if you will. Underneath that is going to be a major question that really will kind of be underneath all of our consideration tonight. Is our threefold division of the law biblical? This division of the law into moral civil and ceremonial that our Westminster Confession, that Presbyterians and Congregationalists, a lot of Baptists, and others for centuries now have underscored and subscribed, is that division biblical? Well, again, that won't be the, the focus. It's just going to be an underlying question of the things we consider. We just have to answer that simply at the beginning, yes. You can't look at the Scriptures and not see that threefold division. There are aspects of the law that we find in the Old Testament that are clearly ceremonial. It had to do with ceremonies, with sacrifices, with feast days, with a religious calendar, with particular washings and ordinances, and the ceremonies are passed away. They're part of the laws we see that apply to Israel as a nation. There were punishments that were given for people that broke those particular laws. The nation itself was to be governed by those things. I like the way our confession deals with that, that those passed away as did Israel as a body politic. But there's another set of laws there's another law itself, we might properly say, that precedes those ceremonies, that precedes those civil ordinances, that follows all the way through alongside of, or we might say better underneath all of those. We could also say above all of those. And that of course abides for us still today. And that is that the Sabbath in these Ten words is part of that moral law. And so as we come this evening to consider that, I want to look at some scriptures. These will be in many ways a sampling. And I might just add along the way here, if you have particular questions on the Lord's Day, there's literally an abundance of good, solid, reformed, biblical material I can recommend to you. I'm sure you can find most of it online nowadays. Just get a name and a title and type it in and it'll probably pop up. Somebody's probably posted it somewhere. And it is truth that was embraced by Protestants throughout their history. It's not some unique thing that just weird people along the way have held on to. No, it's, it's a main thing that everybody along the way held on to until it began to be abandoned. And I want this evening to just, I said, give a sampling of some of the evidences that this law, as we saw last time, this Sabbath law, was a creation ordinance. 
It's not built on Israel's redemption from Egypt. That's mentioned in this account of Deuteronomy. Creation is mentioned in the record in Exodus we found last week. And Israel, we should add, would of course be bound by these laws. They would have a particular relationship and responsibility to the laws of God because God in bringing them out of Egypt and making them as a nation itself through which He would fulfill His promise to send Christ into the world, would obviously be above and beyond all people obligated to obey the laws of their God. But if we look in the Scriptures, and we'll not take time on this front, but in the days after that creation ordinance and the record of the Sabbath being instituted by God's resting on the seventh day, We have even in the lives of the patriarchs where many suggest the Sabbath is absent, I think abundant evidence of the Sabbath. Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel as they brought their offerings to the Lord. It says there quite literally, if you have the marginal reading, it came to pass at the end of days that they brought their offerings unto the Lord. It says in the passing of time in the translation of the authorized version. But at the end of days the indication there of a cycle. A cycle at the end of which they came to worship. They brought their offerings. And what could this be? What possible other understanding of it could you have than following on from the creation account, God sanctifying the day as we saw last time, that this worship in the earliest days of the patriarchal period was on the Sabbath day. And if you look in the story of the flood, you have God Himself recognizing a seven-day interval. No one is family or shut into the ark. God waits seven days. And then the flood begins. As Noah lets the different birds out at the end of the flood to search and see, it's in seven-day intervals that those are sent out and return and then sent out and don't return. Other indications, even the Sabbath and sabbatic years, perhaps in the story of Jacob and his serving for his wives. Other evidences, I say, of that Sabbath intervening. But as we come here to Israel, what I want to point out and the reason that I wanted to read from Deuteronomy this evening is if you look in verse 22 of our reading this evening, these words, the ten words that have been just read, These words the Lord spake unto all your assembly in the mount out of the midst of the fire, of the cloud, and of the thick darkness with a great voice. Now you consider, if you go back to the narrative, the fearfulness of that account. And that great voice and that sound of a trumpet and the fire and the thunders and the cloud. But this phrase in Deuteronomy, and he added no Now I highlight that to you. If you know anything about Exodus, if you read the story of Moses and Mount Sinai, you read the story of God giving the Ten Commandments, you read the story of God with His own hand, with His own finger, engraving in those tables of stone these ten words. Designed as we read later in the account, to be placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, covered with that mercy seat. Wonderful 
picture of Christ. Never forget Dr. Cairns highlighting words of Andrew Bonner, Leviticus, and the measurings of the various furnishings, portions of Scripture that we might kind of read quickly in our yearly read-through, if you will. You know, so many cubits by so many cubits, what could possibly be there? Pause to say, Bonner pointed out that if you look at the measurements of the ark itself, and then the corresponding measurements of the mercy seat, that propitiation, that that is the perfect covering of the law of God. What an emblem, even in the measurements of those ceremonial emblems, to speak of Christ. But when you think of that, these words written in tables of stone by the hand of God, placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, shut in with that golden lid above them, separated from everything else. And then I say this phrase, He added, no more. If you know anything about Exodus, right after God gave the ten words to Moses and engraved them in the tablets of stone, there was the beginning of a host of subsequent commandments that God gave the nation of Israel. You have the various pieces of that ceremonial law and the corresponding laws for the nation that would be built upon those that flow there at Mount Sinai. How could it possibly be suggested that he added no more if it weren't for the fact that here is a distinction that is being preeminently put on display a distinction between these laws, between these words, to which he added no more when he closed them into that ark. And the multiplied other laws and words that he gave to Israel afterwards. I was thinking tonight of trusting in your patience again and bringing a lengthy paragraph from Daniel Wilson on this aspect of the distinction in these ten words and the remainder of the laws of Moses. He began to wax quite eloquent and quite bold and began a string of sentences with the phrase, where is the man? Where is the man that will lift the lid of the sacred ark and reach his hand into those tablets of stone and seek to expunge one? leaving only nine. Such was the attitude and conviction of ministers of old to put it in such bold language. But I say from our understanding again, and we're looking here at this truth of the moral law being different than the rest of the laws that were given to Israel. The moral law reflecting law that had been present from the beginning. From the beginning, man wasn't to kill. We see Cain transgressing that law and punished at the hand of God. From the beginning, man wasn't to steal. From the beginning, man was not to be an adulterer. 
If it's singled out even in the antediluvians and those listings of the characters in those years. The introduction of polygamy that had not been from the beginning. The laws that were published here were not new. The laws that were published here were not distinct for this particular nation. It's not suddenly wrong in Israel to murder, but okay in Babylon to murder. And it doesn't take it doesn't take much understanding. It really doesn't take much reverence, if you will, to read and view this scene. God Himself speaking from heaven. God Himself reaching down and carving these tablets. God Himself instructing that they're placed inside the ark. These laws are distinct from all the other laws given to Israel. And I think that phrase in Deuteronomy recounting the story in Exodus where multiplied subsequent commandments followed, but yet once these are rehearsed and written in stone, said to these, He added no more. Well, this is, I say, on its very surface and at the giving of the law, a distinction between these ten words and the rest of what God gave to Israel. But I want you to turn, if you go to the book of the prophecy of Isaiah, to just establish here as the prophets preached to Israel and always called Israel back to first principles, called Israel back to obedience to the covenant. The illustration of this being Moral and not ceremonial. Of being moral and perpetual and not merely Jewish. In Isaiah chapter 1, just read from verse 11, and these are probably familiar words to us. The Lord speaking through the prophet to an apostate Israel. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I'm full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts My soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I'm weary to bear them. Here's the Lord through His prophet crying out against Israel's ritualistic, ceremonial, empty worship. And Isaiah is filled with preaching gospel truth in contrast to mere ceremony. Isaiah is preaching a lot of what we've started looking at and looking at in Romans chapter 2. He's not a Jew, which is one outwardly. He's a Jew, which is one inwardly. But I say it's remarkable if you turn the page over to Isaiah chapter 58, and this is a portion that we're going to return to, Lord willing, in the close of these studies. But Isaiah chapter 58, we have here a record of Isaiah promoting the Sabbath. 
But there's an interesting context. If you look early in the chapter, as the prophet is told to cry out against Israel and against their sins, to show His people their transgressions, there's a record of various observances that Israel had engaged in, and Israel's surprised that God hasn't blessed them because they've been doing this stuff. They've been religiously going through with these outward ceremonies. They'd even multiplied them. We read here about multiplied fasts. Remember Dr. Barrett preaching an interesting sermon. I'm sure you can find it on Sermon Audio. Go ahead and listen to it. If you catch me plagiarizing and I don't quote him later, then just know a lot of good stuff came from there. But it's called the Sabbath, an aid to worship. And he points out, going through all the details of the chapter, how that Israel is through the prophet, the Lord through the prophet, highlighting their legalism. Highlighting their ritualistic observance of feasts and sacrifices and fasts. Even going through more fasts than the Lord had prescribed because it was only one day they were commanded to fast. And that was the Day of Atonement. They'd multiplied fasts. And they're complaining that God hadn't blessed them because of all the stuff they were doing. And in the midst of the Lord rebuking their outward heartless approach to Him, what's recommended to them? A right observance of the Sabbath. Now that's remarkable. Because we hear Sabbath keeping is legalistic. Sabbath keeping is the kind of bondage that Israel was involved in. We can't do that. We don't want to go there. We've got to have heart religion. And of course, a heart that's warm toward God, of course, is going to push away reserving any time to spend with God without distraction. I speak with sarcasm on the authority of the prophets who often used sarcasm. But here proper observance of the Sabbath is given as part of the remedy for their legalism. Not part of the legalism itself that has to be pushed away. And I say that's remarkable that here this same prophet that opens with the Lord so vividly saying, I hate your Sabbaths. I hate your celebrations of the festival days. I hate the solemn meeting. To what purpose is all these burnt offerings? I'm done with it. I don't want that. And the very same prophet, the Lord, through the very same prophet says, you've been doing all this stuff and you don't honor me. You don't show that honor through honoring my day. And I say that in itself is an evidence of the moral nature of this law. Underneath and above, even the proper ceremonial observances of Israel. But I want to turn to the New Testament Scriptures and hurriedly look at several portions. If you turn to Luke chapter 18, this is the record of our Lord's interview with the rich young ruler. 
I've preached on the rich young ruler more than once over the years. I've been greatly blessed and challenged by it. I think I've told you the story when Jan and I were probably in our first year of marriage. I was preaching in the pre-release center, uh, kind of a halfway jail uh, down in Greenville. And the Lord opened my eyes to some serious changes of theology while I was standing in the pulpit. Jan was sitting back there between two pretty rough characters, tears running down her face. Those guys just sitting there and going to check the paper on the way out the door that they went to church that day. But we were greatly moved, and that story of the rich young ruler, of course, so much gospel truth there. I usually preach on it from Matthew, but I want to read it from Luke's account this evening. If you look in verse 18 and following, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. And then these words, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Of course, we know the rest of the interview. Jesus pointed a legalist to the law. He thinks he's kept them. The Lord puts his finger even on that particular sin of his own covetousness to expose to him that maybe he hasn't kept all of this from his youth up. Maybe he hasn't loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Maybe he hasn't loved his neighbor as himself, which of course is the great commandment and the summary of these two tables of the law. But how the Lord phrases that, thou knowest the commandments. And then he just bullet points off several, what is it, five? Is it virtually half of the ten words? To indicate quite clearly that there's a particular law, there are particular commandments that he has in view. And it just illustrates for us, and it's as if we needed more illustration, but we'll come to others. That these ten words to which it is said in Deuteronomy, he added no more. That these ten words that are graven in stone with the finger of God and placed in the ark, that they are as a unit, they are as a summary, a statement of this moral law. Now, I wasn't going to go completely to this point tonight, but let me, since I've started it, go there. These ten words, the moral law that we're speaking of, we said it before. Those ten words are at the same time larger and smaller than the moral law. We speak of these ten words, or the moral law being summarily by summary, comprehended in these ten words. But the moral law reaches beyond those ten things. These are ten carefully chosen, inspired statements to show us how this law works out in our love to God and in our love to our neighbor. And these are just like the chapter headings 
on all the many thousands of ways we can transgress the moral law. The many thousands of ways we can fail to love the Lord our God. The many thousands of ways we can fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. But this summary is given. The summary is recorded. It is put in stone for safekeeping. It is distinguished from the other stuff because it represents this moral law. And our Lord is so certain of the familiarity of this man that He just speaks quite plainly. Thou knowest the commandments. He looks at them as a unit. If you turn to Romans chapter 13, Paul's closing arguments really, Lord willing, will come to these hopefully in the not too distant future in our study in Romans. But Romans 13, if you begin in verse 8, we read here, O no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. What has Paul done there? He's listed five of the ten words. He's virtually exhausted the second table of the law. Has he done this arbitrarily? Or has he not done this to highlight a well-known and understood list? Has he not highlighted a moral law that all were aware of? If you deny our doctrine of the threefold division, if you deny the teaching of a moral law, then it's just totally accidental that Paul listed these five things out of the Ten Commandments instead of giving something about the type of birds you would bring for this type of offering. Maybe Paul could have included that. He didn't. He just rattled off widely known and understood pieces of this summary of the moral law. Just as our Lord assumed the rich young ruler would understand and have a particular reverence for those ten words as he highlights his knowledge of the commandments. If you turn over to the book of James, this to me is a a striking evidence of the truth we're underscoring. James chapter 2. If you break into this chapter again, reading from the 8th verse, <clears throat> we read here, If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ye do well. Now, he's just given the summary of the second table that Paul gave there in Romans 13 after listing five of those words, he says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as a transgressor. For whosoever shall keep the whole law 
and yet offend in one point. He is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Now James here is giving us remarkable statements because we want to pull back and say, well, you know, maybe like that Jew in Romans 2 wanting to argue. I haven't done the stuff the Gentiles do. I don't sanction the stuff they sanction. But we'll read later in that chapter. You that say you shouldn't steal, do you steal? You that say you shouldn't commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? What did our Lord do when He preached the Sermon on the Mount as He singled out pieces of the Decalogue? Pieces you might say you're not guilty of, but then are you innocent of these words? And James here says, singling out adultery and murder, you don't do one, but you do another. Well, you've broken the whole law. You offended one point, you're guilty of all. Because the heart of unbelief, the heart that's willing to say, I will transgress this, how has that heart kept any of the law? How has that heart loved its God? How has that heart loved its neighbor? And so we see here, Everything in these New Testament uses of the commandments assumes their abiding moral character and even as James highlights, even assumes their unity. Now, we've labored a point here and you could say in some ways we haven't preached the Lord's Day tonight, but we have. For the simple reason that as we look at the Ten Commandments, we look at the Ten Words, those, again, with the finger of God and placed inside the ark. We have evidence. I say we could go back prior to Mount Sinai. We look at Sinai itself. We look at the, the many ways in which God set those laws apart from the rest of the stuff that He gave Israel. We see how the prophets dealt with those laws in distinction from the other ceremonies. And we see how the New Testament Scriptures consistently deal with these laws. The moral law exists. The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are assumed and rehearsed repeatedly in the New Testament Scriptures. And the Sabbath, that one day in seven, that bridge, if you will, between those commands that focus the love we owe to our Creator and Redeemer and that love we owe to our neighbor. It's that bridge that crosses over those two. And in this season of time, We'll come to look, Lord willing, at heaven itself as an eternal Sabbath. But awaiting that day, throughout all the dispensations, God has ordained that one day in seven be sanctified, be set apart to help us 
To borrow Dr. Barrett's words again, that aid to worship that we so desperately need. So again, for these that look at this as old-fashioned, look at this as legalistic, harsh, trust we'll address that more as we go along. Here we've seen it is a creation ordinance, last Lord's Day. Here we see it is a moral law. It's not Jewish. It's not ceremonial. It's attached to those words in the ark to which God added no more. If this doesn't cause us pause, reverent pause, to any desire to do away with this law, I don't know what could. Borrow Daniel Wilson's words again. Where is the man? If God has set apart these words in such distinct ways, who are we to say we can pick and choose which part of those words we think is real and permanent and isn't? The Sabbath, a creation ordinance. The Sabbath, a moral law. I was reading B.B. Warfield's treatment of the obligations of the Sabbath. He almost apologized in his introduction that he wasn't going to speak about the joys of the Sabbath, the benefits of the Sabbath. He said, these are the things I know you'll want to hear. I wish I'd brought the, the little footnote to that. He gave it, I think it was the 14th annual observance some title they gave to recognizing the Sabbath in like 1913 or somewhere in there in Oakland, California. I wonder what kind of crowd you could gather in Oakland, California tonight to talk about not the joys, not the benefits that he apologized for not having as part of his talk, but the obligations and he, and he said, interestingly, for those people that rightly would want to think about the joys and the benefits of Sabbath observance, he said, what could be higher than the word ought? We ought to observe this day. The fact that it's an obligation, the fact that it's part of the moral law, it's only the flesh that says, well, if it's an obligation, there's no benefit and there's no joy. No, when we understand as we ought, it is a joy. And there are multiplied benefits that flow to us. But I say, as we creep along in these studies, the Sabbath, the creation ordinance, not Jewish. The Sabbath, a moral law not ceremonial. Let us be humbled and yet let us rejoice in the truth of this. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, tonight we ask that You would help us. It is so easy to give credibility to sheer numbers. We can look at the multitudes that don't care for any of Your law. 
Those described in Romans 1 as suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. What a description of our generation it is. The Lord weekend sadly count out numbers of professing believers. Many that truly know Your name. Bible believers. Our brothers and sisters in this age. And yet they, they chafe at the Sabbath law. They can't imagine it being a duty as well as a joy and a benefit. But Lord, there have been days of coldness and apostasy in Your church throughout history. And we see often that attitudes toward the Sabbath are indicators of the health and strength or the weakness and unbelief of Your people. Well, Lord, help us. Help us by Your Spirit to focus on Your Word. We're happy for every voice that comes alongside. We're happy even to read those of bygone days that can argue the point and help us. But Lord, let it be enough for us that just You have said it. We don't need to count numbers. We need to consider who's speaking. And so we pray, help us even with these few portions that so plainly set before us this reality that this is part of a law that was different from everything else. This is part of your moral law. This is part of right and wrong throughout the ages. So help us, Lord, we pray. Give us with gospel hearts to understand and do as the Apostle even said, to delight in the law of God after the inward man. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.